Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. John Miller's art looks good enough to eat. A meaty burger glistens with dripping ketchup. Curly fries look crispy out of the fryer. But watch that first bite. John's diner food is made out of glass. John's a pop art glass artist, and his passion is old-fashioned diners. His new exhibit is called Order Up. It's at the Low Art Museum at the University of Miami through Sunday. John's exhibit includes 35 pieces that are sure to make you hungry, and also hungry for the past. Because as much as glass is the medium, so is nostalgia. Diners were everywhere when he was growing up in Connecticut. Today, especially in South Florida, diners are a novelty, a lot like John's art. It's art that speaks to America's past, a vision of what it meant to go out to dinner for the average American family. For John, there's comfort in it. Seeing the exhibit will probably make you hungry. And that's good, because he's also doing a burger pop-up with a local food blogger, Burger Beast, on Friday. To talk to us about it is the artist, John Miller. John, welcome to the show. Hi there, how are you? I am great, I am great. You're joining us from Zoom, because uh, you know, otherwise, even though your exhibit is down here, uh, you are, you're actually going to be driving down, right? From, uh... Oh, yes. Yes, leaving in the middle of a snowstorm here. It's going to be wonderful. <laughs> John, that, that strikes me as like is like the the most American, like as American and as nostalgic as an, an, an art exhibit about diners, right? The well, it's it they go hand in hand. You know, we I've been on the road since I was a little kid, so I really enjoy the mileage and uh, being out there seeing the country. And then you just have to deal sometimes being in the Midwest or in the Northeast, where I grew up with this crazy weather. I know that you guys don't. <laughs> yeah, no, our weather just gets too hot. But, but right. I, I'm curious about that, that driving cross country. Well, you know, is this something that, that you said you grew up doing that you guys, uh, I imagine that's how you encountered so many, so much diner culture. Exactly. Driving. Exactly. My, my father was a motorcycle racer, uh, when I was born. So I was on the road, uh, East coast from Maine to Daytona, um, pretty much until I was about 25 years old. Um, so I got used to that uh, that lifestyle. Um, and of course, um, we would have to eat. So we would stop in different towns along the way. And uh, just uh, I, I always I didn't really realize how much of an impact it had until I started to make artwork. And uh, when I was in grad school, but uh, that's definitely a huge part of um, why I do what I do now. I'm, I'm you're, you're talking about your dad being a motorcycle racer. So I'm thinking like uh, salt flats kind of thing. Uh, so you mentioned uh, Daytona. Road so racing. racing. Road yeah, racing. we my dad raced in, from 73 to 01. Uh, uh, wait a second, 92. Sorry about that. Um, and that was, um, I raced with him the last year in 1992 at Daytona on the Speedway. So we were road racers and uh, it, it does go hand in hand with glass making. It's, it's why I kind of was attracted to the material. How, how does it go hand in hand with glass making? Talking about uh, other than the fragility of human bones <laughs> when you're talking right, about motorcycle racing. Right, right. That's another great connection. <laughs> um, I um, I uh, started to ride when I was six, and then um, uh, in '92 when I raced at Daytona, um, it, it there's a certain high that you get from uh, hmm. motorcycle racing. And as I experimented through school with different mediums, uh, painting, printmaking, ceramics. Uh, small metals, all of it was great. But when I took glass, it really the the intensity level was there, and and I found kind of a connection with the two. So talk to me about. I'm I'm getting this image of you guys really. I mean, because road racing is so much about 
um, loading up the trailer, going to the next race, that kind of thing. And, and so much of it is, is an itinerant, itinerant lifestyle, right? The, this idea of right. moving around and, and talk to me about where, where diners fit into that lifestyle. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, um, I grew up in North Haven. My dad had a shop right next to New Haven, um, Connecticut. So, um, when I was little, we always went to, uh, lunch at lunchtime, um, at the motorcycle shop uh, that he owned. Um, so early on, I got exposed to that, uh, that, uh, real, um, genuine, um, fifties style diner, which was right next door to his shop. Um, Kitty, who was the owner, um, she was probably, I'm going to guess, born around 1905, maybe even 1895, because wow. she was in her mid-70s back in 1970, 69, that, that era. So the, the colors, the, the, how she dressed, her incredible hair, I mean, all of that um, was really impactful for me. And it just kind of uh, was brewing there for a while until I started to make artwork. And, and um, all of the connections came out when I started to make this, this Blue Plate special series, The Diner Food. The uh, the the picture of someone named Kitty uh, owning the diner. That's the perfect name for that person for that job, right? Oh yes, <laughs> yes. That was the the place was Kitty's drive-in, and her son was Fast Eddie. So there you go. You have a whole story set right there. You're just there. <laughs> you're just making it all up now, John. It's it's too perfect. Right, it's right, too perfect. right. Yes, I'm lying. <laughs> <laughs> but so talk to me about then this exhibit, right? This um the exhibit is 35 pieces, and they all um are supposed to kind of exude this uh, this feeling of diner culture T- talk to me about some of the pieces that we'll see there right right and once again um um i i have to thank the pallies um for bringing me in for this and then the whole crew at the low museum they're wonderful people and um really open to collaboration so with the work that's there um uh they saw a bunch of my work i sent them images um, i did a lecture out there last year and um we we kind of put this show together where um, I started to put together 10 or 12 different pieces. And then I worked with the curators there to build this um, in their space specifically. So the, the diner food definitely, you know, connects to uh, 50s diner culture, hot rod culture. My jukebox is in there. I have a 53 AMI jukebox. It's actually in the space. So uh, them being open to exhibiting uh, um, the way that I was kind of visualizing it has been fantastic. So um, huge show. It has eight diner booths in it that were original 1956 Dog and Suds diner booths here in town in Bloomington um, that I purchased. And they, they go with the show as well. So it's kind of a walk down memory lane. And then you definitely go out and eat afterwards. So that that's definitely something that that is part of the art itself is the context, right? Because these pieces yeah, just standing alone on like a on you know on a on a white fluted column uh, is not going to say as much as what you're doing here, right? So just kind of it, put exactly us, put us in that room. Put us in that room. What is it like to move around? Well, through um, it? well, I've 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 only seen it through video and through images, and I to, to tell you the truth, I am dying mm. to get into the space. But we we design find it um uh so uh, the the flow uh uh is not only artwork and of course the context is there with the diner booths they are basically the pedestal for the exhibition pedestals that is mm. um but they uh they went wild with uh picking colors for the walls and putting imagery on the walls of cars and diner uh memorabilia i mean they they just knocked it out of the park as far as i'm concerned and with this work the 
context is very, very important because the scale is gigantic. So if you see a still uh, image of a uh, very formal still image of the diner work, you might think that it's four inches wide or three inches tall or something. When in reality, uh, you know, some of these bacon cheeseburgers are 92 pounds. Uh, that was the largest one we made. So the scale is really important. Having a human in the space is really important. Yeah, but was... you, you you get these little resting places in the show that you can spend some time with the work. They did a really great job. Yeah, I, I think that's that's important too. Because well, there's a there's a piece of that too with like oversized food itself almost is a is a is a commentary, right? Exactly, exactly. I'm trying to to kind of tap into the iconic uh, foods um, uh, from America and really uh, kind of celebrating it. You know. Uh, yeah, talk to me about that about this idea of why like the the idea of making it oversized. Um, wh why was that uh, important to, to the vision of it? There's. There's a there's two things that I can comment on with that. One is the larger the pieces get, the funnier they are. Hmm. Um, so, you know, if you double the size of something, it's like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And then if you make a piece that's 10 times the size, <laughs> there's a strange disconnection that happens with the scale. Um, but it, it does kind of send the viewer back a couple of steps when they see these things and they laugh and they relax and they can access the work. Um, the, the other part of that is that this is very difficult to make um, in the hot shop. Um, uh, I have to have a team sometimes of seven people working in unison to get some of these larger pieces done. Um, so there's a collaborative element. There is a uh, um, the uh, challenge mm -hmm. is there to mm -hmm. create this work. So there's great things going on, a, a lot of different levels. And what really strikes me about it is there is um, you're obviously serious about the art and the creation of it is is incredibly skilled and intensive but the art itself feels like it doesn't take itself very seriously right exactly exactly and and uh oldenburg klaus oldenburg was a huge influence on me buster keaton huge influence on me the silent film hmm. uh genius um th just the way that they thought about work and i was in grad school um uh, um, in the early 90s and I saw Oldenburg's work and it really made me realize that I could make work that was more about me and that was funny and uh, it just seemed at that time that a lot of the work was really heavy conceptually and uh, that was the state of that um, uh, time period uh, early 90s um, and uh, it, it kind of is like a like a jet taking off after that that's interesting that you you were kind of pushing back a little bit uh, on the like the serious uh, art establishment like they would can be insular right um, but you absolutely were, talk to me about that decision and rather than like trying to outdo what somebody else was already doing I think if you're when you're starting to make sculpture I think that you experiment quite a bit um, try mm -hmm. you need to get out of your comfort zone. Um, so you're 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 looking at your influences, you're looking at your peers, you're looking at what's going on at the time period in the world um, with art, and uh, you're just trying to find your way. Um, so I think all that time was great for me, really experimental time, and it made me make choices and make things that I normally wouldn't make. Um, the graduate school experience, um, and then I just found my niche with this because uh, I've I've kind of always been. Uh, fun and loose and very physical with my humor. And it just made complete sense for me to make this body of work back then. Where does that come from? Talk to me about the background that, that made you appreciate comedy and, and that lightheartedness and bringing that into your work. I, I think that, um, well, I, I 
played a lot of different uh, uh, types of uh, sports when I was a kid, basketball, baseball, track, and football, uh, the whole thing. And there's a, a competitive thing that starts to develop there. But, but it is obviously a physical um, uh, thing. Um, and that translated through Buster Keaton into me making artwork. Um, the, the, the story is I saw a bunch of his shorts on HBO when I was 13 years old. And I started to mimic him physically uh, for 20 years after that. And I didn't even realize that that was the connection until I did something one day. And I was like, holy cow, that was from the general um, in 1920 from Buster Keaton. I just didn't realize the impact. And it all kind of came out at the same time. Um, all of this stuff, you know, with the uh, physical humor and also the making uh, the glass making process is is right in line with all of that. So it's it's kind of a gift to be able to work the way that we do in the, the uh, hot shop. Uh, talk to me about that physical humor. What? Give me some examples for folks who don't who don't uh, know Buster Keaton's work and and the the memories that stand out to you about the physical comedy that uh, that really caught your attention. Well, uh, in my uh, slide lecture, which I'm going to do a mini lecture on Friday at the mm. low, kind of a uh, uh, just a, an abbreviated version of the big lecture, and Keaton will be in it again. Um, that that really what it is, it goes, it, it connects with what I do now. It connects with riding and racing motorcycles, the physicality of it. And also there's a danger element there, which was really attractive to me with Keaton. Um, he, uh, I, it's amazing. If uh, I would highly recommend anybody who's uh, um, even a little bit interested um, to go back and do some research on Keaton. Um, I would consider him the first stuntman, but he's, he wasn't that. He wrote and directed and starred in um, all of his movies. But there was always a, a, a chance almost daily for him to lose his life. So if you um, watch some of the things that he did, um, including you know a 5,000-pound facade of a building falling over, him and then the attic window goes around his body when it hits the ground i mean that's one of his more famous um scenes oh yeah but i feel like I, we've I seen think... that bit where the the side of a building falls and he kind of someone crouches and the building falls around them in the like where the cutout that, of the window uh, is yep yeah. these are things that he invented on the fly in the teens and early 20s and it really revolutionized the whole business um I, and it's just for me i can always go back to him for influence and and the the big thing is the stuff that we do is really intense and uh, serious sometimes in the hot shop because if you lose um, your focus for a second the piece hits the floor and I think that that's what Keaton's work is like as well where um, there was this intensity to the creative process that he had but ultimately it made people laugh which is kind of what I do too. Well, I can I can see where that that kind of uh, stunt that kind of stunt would appeal to a guy who uh, raced motorcycles and uh, plays with you know with fragile glass for a living. Right. Um, right. Our guest today is John Miller. His art show Order Up, the pop art of John Miller, is now at the Low Art Museum at the University of Miami. It'll be showing until Sunday, January fourteenth. Uh, the show's closing night party is happening Friday, and it's free and open to the community. John, this kind of art is, it seems so tied into, you know, like all art, tied into your your own personal experiences. So I want to ask mm-hmm. you, I want to ask you about that, about how art came into your life. Sure, um, absolutely. My, my mother was a fantastic uh, two-dimensional artist, <clears throat> and uh, I was drawing 
from my earliest memories, uh, mostly just setting things up and uh, trying to replicate. And that was my first kind of, uh, I guess, interest in, in um, uh, any, anything artistic. That turned into, um, uh, I, I guess, something that I was interested in when I was an undergrad. Um, I immediately started to take drawing classes and printmaking and uh, painting classes and all that stuff. And uh, I, I, I kind of knew that that was my path and then when I took my first glass class when I was 19, that was really it for me. It, it, it the once again the physicality thing uh, kicked in um, uh, really hard in my first glass class, and I knew that that was it for me. I, I'm curious about the encouragement that you got along the way because that's always interesting to me. And folks that were, you know, they 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 discover that they have a passion and a skill in something, and then there's people in their life that encourage them along the way. Who are some of the folks that really? that saw that in you and allowed you to and encouraged you to keep going down that path? Well, I, I think that uh, my family, absolutely parents, um, sisters and close friends, um, I had a, a large family and uh, they were all very, very supportive. When I decided to go to grad school, um, I had a little backyard glass exhibition at my sister's house and all of my aunts and uncles came and friends of the family and uh, purchased work. 20 30 40 bucks it was great but then i uh put that money towards moving to uh the midwest to go to grad school so a very supportive family and um the the other part of that whole thing is when they uh came to the studio to see the actual making of the hot glass pieces that's where they were hooked too and uh, uh you know completely unique way of working and i think they were really interested in that aspect of it what what was it about that particular medium? Do you think that that and you've mentioned uh, uh, several times about the the physicality of it? Um, describe that for me. Talk to me about like what is it? What is it about cre the creation of glass blowing and such that is so physically taxing? I would say that once again, everything you make is a self portrait hmm. um, um, artistically. Um, the the thing about hmm. glass is if you are stubborn enough and you are driven enough. You're going to try to master this material. The and I'm specifically talking about furnace working, glass blowing, uh, hot sculpting, uh, old Italian style uh, working. It is very difficult. And if you're driven and you uh, want to succeed, you have to push yourself really hard. And I did for for decades, and I still do. Um, that's that's the hook for me. I think that the making process and once again the physicality of it, that it is. 2100 degrees when it comes out of the furnace and then all of a sudden in 10 minutes or an hour or two hours there's this crazy thing that's been created on the end of a pipe that's spinning around and you know uh with it's just a great process i absolutely love it i'm, I'm picturing um you know you your the your dad's motorcycle shop and which sounds so much like what you're talking about you know you're dealing with exactly. heavy, with heavy equipment you're dealing with you know potentially dangerous things things that you have to be very cognizant of and in the moment uh is, what was the connection there like what do you do you feel like one led to the other could you have easily have been a motorcycle racer for for, for a living yes yes i actually uh raced for about five years and that's where i was headed um the uh in in my lecture there was a picture of my father with a, a quarter mile drag bike and then all of the guys from his shop that helped build this thing um and it is just a, an insane vehicle uh super dangerous and then there's there's all those connections but that directly connects to what i do now um uh that picture is burned in my brain 
And um, it's it's almost identical to what I do now with a crew of one to seven people. Like I was mentioning, it depends on the size of the pieces, but it's the same thing. You get a bunch of really great, fun people together. They focus and create. And uh, I see that a direct line uh, to what my dad did. So there's definitely a uh, there's a communal aspect to creating the art. I mean, th- there's the vision, but then there's creating the art as you see it inside your head, the same way that, you know, you're building up a, a, a drag race bike. Definitely. And and the, the the key to being successful with what I do is to be able to be relaxed enough and personable enough to, uh, uh, you know, have close close friends work with you and create. Um, I think that that's 50 percent of it, maybe even more to have the personalities click and uh, um, enjoy uh, what you do. Uh, be creative, you know. Yeah. Talk to me about those days where you are creating art and what are the moments where there's like a click, you know, where you realize this is going to be your career. This is the thing that's going to um, that's going to be the focus of your life. Um, I, I would say realistically, every single time I sit down and gather up glass and sit at the bench, I have this kind of wave of relaxation that goes over my body mm. and I I really do. And it's not, it's not a, uh, um, you know, I'm not lying to you guys. Hmm. When I sit down, I, I feel this thing come over me where I realize that this, this is it. This is what I've, what I want to do. And this is what I want to do the rest of my life for my career. And it's a, it's a no brainer for me. It it happens multiple times a week. Um, Hmm when I'm working hot. Um, and, uh, and I think that's what happened way back in, uh, you know, uh, 87 when I gathered my first uh, bit of glass on the pipe. This, this series that you're doing specifically focusing on diners, I want to talk about how you got to that point of that wanting to create that. Is this something that you've been mm-hmm. doing for a long stretch of your career, the specifically diner art as far as pop, pop art? Well, I, I, um, started in 87 at Southern Connecticut in New Haven and ended up at the University of Illinois in Champaign. And I had been making all kinds of classical forms and uh, abstract sculptural forms and installation work. And then I, I, I kind of had an epiphany when I was at a, a diner hmm. um, uh, looking at the, the food on the plate, uh, listening to the sounds, listening to people talk, listening to the cook. Uh, bang on the stainless grill, all of this stuff. And I started to look at the food as uh, kind of uh, uh, different textures. And I started to see those textures in glass. Um, and um, uh, I just went right in that day and started to make the first um, piece, which was a um, like a 15-inch uh, crinkle cut French fry with all of the crazy grease and texture on it and all this stuff. Um, and up to that point, I had... Um, uh, put a, a bunch of technical um, uh, experience behind me so I was able to um, use all of that knowledge and uh, focus onto this one piece. And that's kind of how it all started. That was in 99. And um, uh, people reacted favorably to it. I got my high from it hmm. by making it. And uh, it just exploded after that. So was this? it was this thing where you began to see the the textures that you saw in your art kind of uh, appear in nature in the nature inside of a diner, so to speak, in the crinkle of a fries. I there's this one piece that you have, which is like a a glass of um of it looks like of Coca Cola, and you can see like yep. the little effervescence of the bubbles, and it kind of recalls like oh I've seen bubbles in glass before, and you kind of put them in a new context, which I thought was so fascinating. Well, this this is the whole thing. 
with glass making. Um, I uh, luckily worked out um, in Stanwood, Washington, north of Seattle in Dale Chihuly's school, Pilchuck Glass School. So my job there was to maintain some of the facilities. And then we worked on the weekends with some of the other staff members. But I got to work with all of these masters from Murano, from uh, the Czech Republic, from Japan, England, Australia. I mean, all these incredible People, number one, um, um, uh, technicians, number two. So all of the work, and, and this is something that I'll do on uh, Friday. I'll walk through and, and kind of point some specific things out because mm. the, the bubbles in the Coca-Cola come right from an Italian technique where they um, use um, kerosene in the glass to create this crazy bubble uh, texture um, with the material. So that's how I, I use baking soda to get those bubbles in there to get that. And then another traditional Italian technique to make it look like it's full, you know? So that's also the beauty of this art too, is that there is this world of knowledge and a world of serious tech, uh, um, building of technique, right? And, and learning and passing down of technique that goes into these, uh, unserious looking pieces, right? Uh, it takes all that, that to get to this point. It's the same thing with Keaton uh, pulling the first camera apart because he needed to know exactly how that thing worked so he could uh, understand it uh, before he actually used it to film uh, some of his uh, silent films. Um, you know, I I worked for, uh, I mean, I worked for about 12 years straight um, through holidays and the whole thing to kind of build all of this up and um, um in that time period, and of course, right after, I was able to um, see all these tremendous workers and pick little bits and pieces from each one of them to put into these uh, works. And the the burgers are, I can trace every single technique from the sesame seeds down to the bottom hmm. bun where I saw it initially. You know, what's what's also interesting to me is that then you have all these works and you have these shows across the country like you do in, in uh, Miami uh, this week. And in a lot of cases, you will just you will load up a vehicle and take them to the different locations, right? Yes, what I'm doing in in the snowstorm tomorrow night. (laughs) (laughs) We're supposed to get six inches here, so I'll be stomping around in the snow, loading up thousands of dollars worth of glass to bring down to Florida, and then I um, I'm coming back with a full 20 foot trailer and then my, my uh, full size van filled to the front and back and top and sides um, with all of this crazy glass. Hopefully I won't roll it. That would be terrible. I mean, that sounds like a performance art piece to me. Just that, just that in and of itself. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And the, and that, and I, I would agree. And I think that that goes hand in hand with everything that we've talked about. Um, the excitement, the intensity, the physicality of getting everything loaded up properly. So you don't break anything. the, 18 hour and 45 minute drive it's going to take me to get to uh uh coral gables from here and then the first six hours will be through a snowstorm i mean (laughs) it's kind of how it's always been and that's the way it was when i was a kid too you know the first uh six eight hours leaving connecticut to head to daytona sometimes were pretty torturous in march um and then once you get down to virginia things start to loosen up and then the smells change and then the pecans and Orange stands start popping up, and all of this great stuff happens when you get down. It's all transition. Talk to me about that, about this. You know, you grew up this entire lifestyle of going to races with your dad, uh, motorcycle races. And what you saw along the road had to, you know, how the diners were different in Georgia from what they were in Connecticut, for instance. Talk to me about some of the things that you saw that you that pointed to you, that told you so much about the culture you were seeing there. This is a perfect question. 
because you have to realize what's going on now. And while well, Jesus 24 now, um, uh, happy new year. Oh, um, yeah, happy new year. <laughs> think about, <laughs> think about what kids do now on an 18 hour trip. Most likely their faces in a phone or on a laptop or on a tablet. And they don't even look outside period. Not even once maybe, Oh, look a deer. And then they're not interested. Hmm. Um, we, I mean, we're talking about 1973, four, five, you know, where you shove a little kid in a, a motorcycle van with all these greasy bikes and leathers and tools and all of this stuff and a pillow. And then off you go. None of this car seat stuff or technology. I just looked out the window and looked at everything. I counted Volkswagen bugs. I looked for deer. I looked for eagles. Um, everything for hours and hours and hours. It sounds terrible, but it, it definitely formed me. Uh, maybe even just, um, you know, the ability for me to be inquisitive, you know, and uh, 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 along the way. And that's kind of how the, those trips were. And they were always late night. It was always like, Dad's coming at 10 a.m. to hmm. pick you up. And then it would be 8 a.m. the next morning. And we would take off or maybe 1 a.m. when he showed up because he would build these motorcycles. Once again, creative uh, process and then load them up, pick me up and go. Uh, so just depending on when he got done uh, with this stuff is when we hit the road. Um, but I, I, I do think that there there is uh, there are all kinds of things that happen along the way and barbecue down south. And the first time I went to Daytona uh, in 78. I went to a Waffle House. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what the heck is this place? So uh, anyway, puts <laughs> what, everything in perspective. Yeah, well, th that's interesting to me, too, is like what's like you must have seen the reflection of local culture in, in diners, because when you think of diners, you think, you know, kind of like the stainless steel outside. But diners take a lot of forms. I mean, down here in Miami, we have a handful of them and they're all very different from each other. Um, did you is that something that you kind of taught you about culture as you guys were moving around the country, around up and down the East Definitely. Coast? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And and just like my father, uh, we we had like once you get to a specific diner or restaurant, um, the two of us, um, you know, you sit down and you order the same thing you did last time. It's a consistency thing. And because the experience was a certain way the last time you want to relive that. Um, I do that um, weekly here in uh, Illinois. Um, there are specific things. And uh, and it's it, it is the whole like explosion of nostalgia. Um, the food does change state to state. And um, uh, I did pay attention to that. Hmm. And uh, um, um, I mean, it came out much, much later in my life through artwork. Um, but I, I do feel like it formed me as a person and um, gr great memories um, and traveling all over the place. Our guest today is John Miller. He's an associate professor of glass at the Illinois State University, and his art show, Order Up, is now at the Low Art Museum at the University of Miami. It'll be showing until Sunday, January 14th. So, John, talk to me a little bit about research, right? <laughs> You're doing all these trips. Are you still researching? Like, do you still come into town and see what do diners look like now that diners are not, like, are not the, the really the only restaurants in town? They become kind right, of a right. dime breed, yeah. Um, the... Um uh, this well, this kind of goes in line with everything we've talked about. Um, I got a call from uh, from Grey Goose last year, and they said, "Hey, can you come down to Miami Beach during Art Basel and put a six foot martini glass up on the beach?" And I said, "Sure." 
Um, and I, you know, I was damaged at the time. My shoulder was reconstructed. I was in a sling and I said, sure, I could do that. Um, so, uh, my that wife seems, and I, that seems like down. a tall order. You had been, you had been injured and then you, you see, oh. you're going to make this six foot statue of a glass statue of a martini. Sounds like quite a, sounds like you went through oh. a, uh, an ordeal there. It was an ordeal. It was, it wasn't an ordeal. It was, uh, it ended up being, uh, close to 46 hours on the road because it was Thanksgiving week and it was a disaster when it comes to traffic, but uh, we did it. We got it done, Amazing. but getting, getting to what I was uh, uh, talking about, I did pass an old school train diner, um, uh, maybe two, three blocks in from South beach. And I'm definitely going to hit that, um, when I come down there, um, in, uh, uh, this weekend. Oh my God, this weekend. Wow. <laughs> I can't even believe it's right around the corner. Holy cow. Um, I, 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 somebody did mention the same thing to me recently about how they feel that it's different now. And, and I, I do feel that it's different, but to answer your earlier question, I think it's the, the, the food and the personalities equally that keep me coming back to all these places. Um, and, so, uh, maybe a, a cool little t-shirt to take with me. That That's kind of interesting. The idea that, that there is, um, there's a kind of community that you're looking for when you go to different diners definitely and that goes way back if you can if you think about all cultures and eating Mm. it brings people together and it is it's a once again a co-collaborative thing um and uh something that's gone through history uh, as a whole you know i mean you're i would say you're kind of an expert on diners right now can you talk to me about like what you've seen how they've changed um, and and like even from the food that you see, but the people that you see, the importance in culture from when you were driving around as a kid in the 70s to, to now when you'll be at like like you mentioned, I think you mentioned, the, I think that's um, 11th Street Diner in Miami Beach, the uh, one that's kind of a train uh, Yes, yeah. got it. Um, I, I, I don't want to get all sad about all this stuff, but things have changed so drastically. Um, I, I, you know, I grew up in the New Haven area in Connecticut and food was um kind of the pinnacle there um with all the um italian restaurants the second and third and fourth pizza places in the country Mm. um, were there and i went to them as a kid so um huge part of my life and i do feel like there's less of it now and i feel that it is different but i can still meet my family when i go back to new haven and stop by sally's or peppy's or modern um, to, uh, to get some, uh, pie as we say on the East coast. Hmm. Um, so I think it's all still there. I just think there's not as much of it. Um, and, and I think that my cousins and me and, um, um, sisters, um, and rest of the family members, really, they're all holding on to that. You know, that, that was such a big part of our lives. I think that everybody says, okay, well, let's go sit down at modern when John comes home from Illinois and we get a group of 12 or 15 people to sit down and kind of catch up. And um, I mean, uh, I, I absolutely love it still. But I, I, I do I do think that it has changed. When well, So when you think about it, like then your your art helps to kind of also there's a little bit of memorialization. Like this is what yes. this is what getting a coming around a table at a diner was like uh, for you. It's very it's very like you said, every every piece of art is autobiographical, right? Is a self-portrait. Yes. And it is. It's 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 holding on to that, um, uh, you know, 
uh, holding onto those memories and, um, and, you know, kind of keeping the family together in mm. a way in your, in your head, yeah. you know, um, um, I, uh, it's, it's really important to us to be able to do this and holidays as well. We all got together and there's huge family meals with 20 or 30 different dishes at Christmas and Thanksgiving. All that was really, really important to me. And I'm trying to, uh, keep that going in my life as well. Talk to me, Ben, then about the reaction of this art, because because it's so nostalgic, uh, it, hit, it hits people in a certain place. Over the years, what is it that, talk to me about some of those conversations that it sparked uh, for you, that has kind of kept you going, kept you creating. Absolutely. And it, it definitely is the reaction to the work, because a lot, a lot of times at these exhibitions, I'll kind of sneak off to the side and watch people walk up to the work. Hmm and look at it and maybe step back a little bit and laugh a little bit. And, and I, I, I kind of study them uh, when they do this. And, um, and then I'll walk up and say, Hey, I know the guy that made this stuff. And, uh, and then spark up a conversation with them just to kind of put them on the spot. And I do ask hard questions, um, you know, to them, what, what are they, why are they attracted to it? Why are they not attracted to it? If this was your work, what would you do? And, hmm. and it all goes back to that kind of self-critical, um, uh, style of working and being open-ended on it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is, you're putting yourself out there. Mm. And, um, I think it, you're, you're inviting people to come in and kind of get inside your head in a way. And, uh, that's, that's, uh, one of the things I really enjoy about making this work. John, I'm curious how, how your work has changed over now decades of doing artwork, especially when you get into town and maybe like, a Miami diner might have, you know, something totally different. Like some somewhere in the South, you might have, you know, liver and onions on the on the menu. But in Miami, you might have something, you know, you might have a Cuban sandwich on a menu, um, things like that. How has has your art changed? Has it evolved? Um, it has evolved through commission work, and I'll hit on two things. One is most of the work that I choose to make uh, has to be fairly decadent and um, maybe not the best health food, let's just say, <laughs> slap an extra piece of cheese on there. Um, and uh, the second part of that is I got a call from some friends in Philly and they said, hey, we'd like a 30 inch Philly cheesesteak. Can you do it? And I said, yes, uh, provolone or whiz. <laughs> and, uh, and that was that. We went right to it. Oh, wait, 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 then, wait, wait. Uh, Which was it? Provolone or whiz? Oh, it was whiz. Oh, no. <laughs> I can't. Uh, I can't blame and, them. They're both delicious in different ways. Well, this is this is a typical situation for me. I got the thing done, got it set, got it packed. My wife and I hopped in the van, booked right out to Philly, twelve hours straight, and installed the piece um, in their house. And we hit um, Pat's and Gino's, and and went to both places and got two gigantic cheesesteaks and then uh, ate them both, which is what I do every time I go there. Um, so I can, uh, you know, have the provolone and the whiz. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, that's <laughs> definitely the way to go. Um, so what about things in, in Miami? So you're saying there there's not a big uh, there's not a big demand for big salads, big pop art salads yet? I've done a salad. It was a commission. <laughs> it was fun. But it just doesn't do it like a big greasy burger does or a three foot Chicago dog or New York dog right out of the cart, you know? Yeah. Sorry. Um, and then all sorry, of vegans. the history. Sincere apologies yeah, to the right, vegans in the crowd. Right. 
Yeah, when I when I'm making this work, I have friends who are uh, vegetarians here, and I just tell them that it's a soy dog or something like that, or a soy burger, so they don't feel so bad. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. That's a, a good way to kind of a, to appease your your friends, especially, right? Right, right. So, are, are there what's your what's your diner order? I mean, this has to be something that there has to be a go to when you're feeling you you have a little bit of comfort. The guy who creates art out of diner food, what is his order when he sits down? Always breakfast. Every time, no oh, lunch. Bre- breakfasted for dinner. I love that. Always breakfast, and I do what I call the standard, which is a piece that I did years ago. It's uh, two eggs over medium with bacon, hash browns, uh, and a cup of coffee. And um, um, I, I, that's how you. That's kind of goes back to you, what you were asking earlier about mm. what diners do certain things for me. When you get the eggs on the plate, you can look at them and you know if they're good or bad. As in. They shake a certain way, which means, man, 10 more seconds on the grill would have been better. Um, you know, and, and so I, I order that same thing every single time because then it gives me an idea of what kind of bacon they have. And this is all silly stuff to talk about. It's, it's just killing me. I, I love um, it. I love it because, about this. I mean, I have a friend who's uh, who's standard when she goes to a place that she asks, she has the Caesar salad because that's her. Yeah, that's what she measures it by. So for you, it's it's your standard is the uh, over over medium eggs, right? Exactly. And uh, because I'm always nose to the grindstone working i usually don't eat lunch very often and dinner's late so um um but once again i have my places around the country that i go to the red coat tavern in royal oak uh tesaro's in pittsburgh the uh, best hamburgers in the country i mean they're just unbelievable so those i i kind of stop I'll go an extra four hours to get lunch when I'm on the road to get a good sandwich or, you know, suffer and drive from Illinois to uh, Soho in New York and go to Katz and wait in line for 45 minutes to get um, a sandwich. Um, uh, it's just worth it for me. Right. I, uh, I, I I set my whole trip up to do this stuff. All right. So do you have your, your Miami diner itinerary set? Do you have any places specifically that you're looking to? Um, not yet. And I, and maybe after we're done, we can talk. I I mean, I can listen, the folks listening could use some suggestions. So I'm going to point you to Jimmy's East side, right? Which has been around, which has been around for decades. And it was actually in the movie Moonlight along with, uh, Royal Castle. It's the last remaining one. Uh, it's in, uh, uh, close to Liberty city and, uh, and it has just kind of remodeled and reopened. And if you get way down south, there's Walter's Coffee Shop. It's like amazing, right on US One, and they all scream totally different kinds of diners. I think, and that that's the part too, right? Is that there's there's a uniqueness to each each place. Absolutely, and uh, the research and development is always great <laughs> uh, for me. I do. I take a lot of photographs, and I sketch a lot. Um, I bring my sketchbook with me wherever I go. So whenever I sit down, um, it's it's kind of this nice relaxing time, which is very, which is not very often because I'm always working. Um, but that is a precious time for me to have that brain space. And then, um, oh, it, like okay, for an example, the other day I was um, loading up some work out of my studio here, right off of Route 66 in Bloomington, and uh, somebody stepped on a ketchup packet right outside my door, and I said, "Oh my God, that's fantastic! That's art so right I, there, right?" Right. I photographed it and I'm going to make that piece, but on a, a large scale. Um, and glass is a great material to get that uh, kind of gesture, um, um, you know, the, the, the squirting gesture, let's just say. Um, so, um, yeah, those things happen all the time. 
Talk to me about some of the reactions from folks because the art that's so accessible like this, um, it, it really, uh, you know, versus like a Rothko or something like that, it's something that's so accessible really has to um, invite people to come and have a conversation with you. Whereas, you know, where otherwise they might feel a little intimidated about knowing what, what kind of commentary they might be making on their art. Talk to me about that, about right. what it's been like to, has it inspired first like one-on-one -on -one conversations with people and why you know oh definitely um i the work was made specifically to be accessible to everyone mm. um and you know every everybody has a different kind of response to it as in if somebody's 80 or 85 years old they are right back to middle school or high school or you know being 16 and getting their license and being able to go to uh steak and shake here um, uh, which is uh, the first steak and shake in the country was here right down the street from where I am now. Uh, but that was a big go-to right on 66. So um, those were really important, important formative things um, for, um, for people um, uh, growing up and, and uh, in all these different towns. I might have lost track there. You might need to get me back on track. <laughs> no, you're, you're on the perfect track, John. Um, and, and I think what's interesting is that uh, although, the although the exhibit closes Sunday um, at the Low Art Museum, on Friday you're doing kind of like a, like a goodbye dinner, right? Like you're, having a, you're actually having a burger pop-up with um, toasted by um, Seth Gonzalez, who, go who blogs under the name The Burger Beast. He's a buddy. We'll shout him out. Um, talk to me about that, about being able to pair uh, art that, that, is, that looks delicious enough to eat with actual food that you can eat. Oh, it's it, it's it's a, it's a, once again, I keep saying hand in hand, hmm. but uh, it, it's essential um, uh, to uh, hit all the highs. You know, uh, my first show that I had uh, with uh, representational work and some some of the diner work, um, we had um, PBRs and hot dogs and potato salad at the opening. You know, and it's the same old stuff. Sometimes you think about art openings uh, as pretentious where, you know, you must have wine or maybe a martini um, and have some intellectual conversation. And I'm like, uh, let's just get some PBRs and dogs and make this happen. And it, it does set the tone um, for uh, loosening people up and having them look at the work a little bit differently, um, uh, um, maybe making it more accessible. Um, but the um, depending on who you are, what your background is, it kind of uh, it clicks and it sends you back someplace, you know, in your uh, in your life. And is that part of it, too, the idea of creating art that that creates conversations with people that uh, might not normally approach art kind of encouraging this might be an, this might be a gateway to, to different kinds of art. Right. The idea of pop art. Def definitely. And, and it also because of the type of work that it is, I think that <clears throat> there's um, been quite a few. Uh, well, let's say a diverse group of people coming in to see it, um, including maybe car enthusiasts and maybe cooks. Who knows? Um, but that has happened in the past. Um, so for me, uh, having these museum exhibitions is a great thing because we can tap into the community and uh, really uh, um, attract a different type of viewer, let's say. All right. Well, before we go, John, and you have to tell me what goes on your burger order. What's your burger order look like? My burger is just like the standard breakfast. It would be bacon, cheeseburger, lettuce, tomato. That's it. Sometimes onion, but not really. Burger. I think onion makes it look better, uh, but just standard, pretty much for me, medium rare. Well, hopefully you'll be able to get your fill when you come down. John, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. 
Oh, fantastic. Thanks a bunch. And thanks to everybody at the low. Appreciate it. Our guest today was John Miller. His art show, Order Up, the pop art of John Miller, is now at the Low Art Museum at the University of Miami. It'll be showing until Sunday, January 14th, and they will have a burger pop-up on uh, Friday, January 12th. And that's Sundown for Monday, January 8th. Leslie Obaye Atkinson is our lead producer. Our producer is Elisa Baena. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News, and Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's VP of Radio, and our engineer is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Brittany Wallman. She's covered some of the most important stories for our community via the Sun Sentinel. Now she's on to the Miami Herald's investigative team. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. Public Media.